Turn to 2 Samuel 6. 2 Samuel 6. Verses 11 to 23 this evening. The title of the message, Before Whom We Stand. It's not always easy to stand up for what is right, is it? It's not always easy to trust that we stand before God and God alone and so be able to drown out the din of the world, the scorn of those who don't see things the same way we do, even those who claim to follow our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ like we do and yet don't appreciate our love for the Lord, our zeal, the, the way in which we desire to serve the Lord, the way in which we believe the Lord would have us to serve. But you know, people come and go. Opinions come and go. They're a dime a dozen, are they not? You can get opinions everywhere. Everyone has one. There's coming a day, however, when we are going to stand before God. And when we stand before God, we're going to answer to Him for His opinion. We don't answer to our neighbors, our friends, our loved ones, our Parents are children in, in, in the sense that we rise and fall before God's opinion, not anyone else's. And that should make all the difference to the way we live our lives. We're going to talk about that today. This is going to be a bit of a unique message. Uh, I was trying to figure out how to express this message. Of course, we'll exposit the text. But it's, it's an important concept that I don't know that we hear all that often about this Christian life, which is that we stand before the Lord. And as we consider that concept, how we deport ourselves among ourselves in our lives because we will stand before the Lord should really matter. We go back just a bit in our text this evening, 2 Samuel 6. We kind of went through verse 14 last time. We're going to jump back to verse 11 and 12 where we read this. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David. With gladness. Now, last time we were together, we read about David attempting to bring the ark up from Kirjath-Jerim to Jerusalem, uh, but something happened. David diverted his path when, along the road, they had placed this ark, the ark, on a new cart, and the new cart was shaken by the road, and the ark began to tip. So Uzzah put out his hand to steady the ark. And the Lord smote him. And we talked about why that was, because God said that that's what would happen. The holiness of the Lord and, and, and what, what God did was what God said he would do. And Uzzah died. This brought great fear unto David, fearing that maybe the Lord was displeased and certainly didn't want to bring that into Jerusalem if, if, if the Lord was displeased. And so the ark was turned aside to the house of Obed-Edom. For three months. And the scriptures tell us that the Lord blessed that house. That while the ark was there in Obed-Edom, Obed-Edom and his family was blessed. 
And so as we consider um, verses 11 and 12 again, uh, we, we see David's motivations just a little bit deeper here. The, the motivation for David bringing the ark to Jerusalem was because he desired the presence and the blessing of the Lord upon the nation. And this is not a bad thing. God said his presence would be with them, so why should not? Why, why, why shouldn't David go and get the ark and bring it to Jerusalem and have the tabernacle there, the presence of the Lord among them? We, we, we might be looking, uh, tempted to look at David's zeal and see selfishness, to see self-serving. David wants a blessing. He doesn't want it for others, but, but surely this is not the case. M much rather, David was seeking to obtain the promises that God had given to the nation in the days of Moses. God promised that level of blessing, a blessing that the nation had never really fully uh, realized, fully known. And David had the faith and the zeal to seek that blessing, not just for himself, but for the nation who followed him as king. And if God has made promises... David should not be faulted in any way for his desire to obtain those promises, should he? If we are given promises, why would we see fault when somebody tries to claim them? When we read the promises of God to us in this book, why would we be upset? Or why should anyone be upset with us when we seek to receive the very fullest of the blessings of God. Keep those ideas in mind because in many ways David's zeal forms the very fabric of the conflict which will arise toward the end of this chapter. So David goes on. He goes to get the ark. He says, aha, Obed-Edom is being blessed, not cursed. That's a good thing. I want that ark. So he goes and he gets the ark three months later and he brings it into Jerusalem this text tells us, with gladness. Now, we talked last time about the cross-reference in 1 Chronicles 15, which told us that at, the at this time, this time David did it right. This time David brought the ark in on the staves, not on a cart, on the staves, and, and that, that message was about the danger of the new cart, right? The danger of doing things uh, with a zeal for the Lord, but not the way God has asked us to do them. So this time he does it right. He calls the Levites. He gets them to carry it on the staves. He brings it in according to the law. We continue reading in verses 13 and 14. And it was so that when they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod. So verse 13 tells us that when the ark had gone six paces, oxen and fatlings were sacrificed. It is likely... There's, there's some contention as to what this means, but likely what this means is that every six paces, David had erected an altar along the path from Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem. And as the ark went by every six paces, they would slay the, the oxen that was on that, or the fatling that was on that altar. Now the distance was likely somewhere around 10 miles. And so it would have required several thousand oxen, which one might say, well, that can't be right. That, that, that sounds preposterous. But recall, just 40 years from this point, when Solomon is dedicating the temple to the Lord, thousands upon thousands of oxen were sacrificed on that day. 
So it, it is not necessarily an unheard of or an unreasonable thing to think that every six paces along this route from Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem, in order that David could rejoice and praise and honor and magnify the Lord, he had somebody standing there ready to slay the, the oxen, ready to slay the fatling all along the route. Now, 1 Chronicles 15.26 supplements this and says that when David reached Jerusalem, they sacrificed another seven oxen, the number of perfection, the number of God, as a final tribute unto the Lord as they entered the city. So oxen and fatlings all along the way, every six paces. And then at the end, there were seven of them, and they sacrificed those seven as they entered the city of Jerusalem. Now, all throughout this procession, the text tells us that David danced before the Lord. Since the beginning of worship, since worship began, since the Lord instituted it, dancing had always been used, in, in particularly in Hebrew culture, as an expression of worship unto the Lord. Now, it's something that's fallen out of favor, particularly in our circles, uh, the, the idea of dancing in this day and in this time, yet, yet it's not in any way an invalid form of worship and joy when done in a manner that is virtuous and proper. We all recognize that there are, are ways that you can dance that are, are sensual, and those, of course, dominate culture today, right? When, when you think of dancing today, whether it's, whether it's uh, the music video type stuff or whether it's the clubs, of course, all of that dancing is perverse, it is sensual, it is wicked. And yet, throughout history, and, and even today in many cultures, you can see dancing uh, it, that, is, that is right, that is, that is not vulgar, that is not inappropriate, that is not profane, that is not wrong, and, and uh, it, it is an art form in many ways. And in Hebrew culture, in particular, dancing was one of the primary expressions of joy and an expression of worship unto the Lord. And I, I do mention again that as I talk about that, um, the majority of what modern culture calls dancing is little more than a cesspool of sensuous and immoral movements intended to provoke sexual arousal. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? That's not what David was doing at all. Now, the most important element of this text is that David, while dancing, did so with the linen ephod girded on. He was wearing a linen ephod. The linen ephod was... Um, not worn by priests during the performance of their rituals. It was worn by those who were uh, ascribed priestly character, those who um, were priests but not, they, either they were in training or they were not performing their official duties at the time. You recall when, when um, Ahimelech was killed by Saul, the scriptures say that also all that wore the linen ephod were killed as well. So those would have been other priests, priests that did not have the priestly duty ascribed unto them but had other duties, they wore the linen ephod. And, and so David wore one of these linen ephods. Uh, we know that Samuel wore a linen ephod in 1 Samuel when he was a child. If you go back to the early days in 1 Samuel, we find that Samuel wore a linen ephod. It was worn by people certainly in the priestly family. And, and as the priestly class were servants in Israel, the linen ephod would have become a symbol of humility, would have become a symbol of piety, of a vestment of lowliness. Now, it was certainly not unlawful for David to wear the linen ephod. It would have been unlawful as a Judite for him to wear the actual priestly vestments and try to certainly try to 
perform the priestly duties. But the linen ephod was not that way. The linen ephod would, would have, it would not have been unlawful for him to do so. But for a king to wear such harmful, uh, humble garments, such humble clothing, would have been quite a statement. This would have been a big deal. To see a king, a man who is uh, dignified and, and, and of royal, uh, he's, he's wealthy, he's royal, uh, he, he, he has the best of the land. For him to wear a linen ephod, the humble garments of the priestly class, would have been pretty startling in, its, in his humility there. And that's what this was. The statement was not that David was attempting to associate himself with the priests, but he was associating himself with worship and humility. It was an act of deep humility before the Lord. And we'll talk a little bit more about what it meant that he wore the linen ephod in just a little bit. So verse 15 tells us, David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. This was a time of joy. It was a time of celebration. The ark had entered into Jerusalem and with it the promised presence and blessing of the Lord upon the people of Israel. As a matter of fact, over the next several hundred years, you'll find that when, when Israel was in difficult straits, Jerusalem would be confident in the strength of their city, not just because of their walls, but because in their city dwelt the ark, the presence of the Lord. And they say, if the presence of the Lord is here, then God is surely not going to let this city fall. And so they, they are rejoicing in the presence of the Lord that entered into Jerusalem at this time. And it, it would seem likely, as I mentioned last week, let's just review again, that the ark had been out of the tabernacle and had been effectively away from the mind of the people for about 70 years. Now I told you how we got that last week. We recognize in 1 Samuel 7, 1 and 2 that the ark remained with Abinadab for 20 years around which, after which time probably that's when Saul was crowned king. Then Saul reigned for 40 years and then he died and then David reigned seven and a half years in Hebron and then he had to take Jerusalem after that. So we're talking somewhere around 70 years since the Ark of the Covenant had been in the tabernacle which had been in Shiloh when it was taken out and then eventually went to Nob and perhaps a couple of other places as well before now resting in Jerusalem. So with the sound of the trumpet, with the shouting of the people, with the rejoicing, David is dancing. There's this long procession. There's blood everywhere because all of these fatlings and ox had been killed. And, and the ark comes into Jerusalem to be among the people of God. But the day was not without conflict. Verse 16, we read this. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David... Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. As the ark makes its way into the city, Saul's daughter and David's first wife, Michael, looks out a window and sees David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And the text tells us that as she saw him, she despised him. That word despise, literally meaning to place lower, to disesteem. She looked at him and saw him, disesteemed him, disrespected him in her heart. Lowered his value to her in her heart. We'll talk more about why as Michael explains herself toward the end of the text. 
We pick back up with David here in verses 17 and 18. And the text says, And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of the of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people. Excuse me. In the name of the Lord of hosts. So David took the ark. He placed it in the midst of the tabernacle, revealing that he had also brought the tabernacle from Nob and established it in Jerusalem. And it's likely at this point that those seven oxen were slain that we talked about in 1 Chronicles 15, 26. Now we read in 1 Chronicles 16 that David set about to reestablish the Levites as ministers of the ark and the tabernacle. And then we also read, if you're, if you're interested, you can go and read about him reestablishing the Levitical, um, the Levitical order. And then you can also read a beautiful psalm of praise that he writes unto the Lord. And uh, we, we uh, will consider this praise at least in part in the future. This day became a holiday. This day of rejoicing. The day that the ark came in. Everybody was happy. Everybody was rejoicing. David had blessed the people by the Lord their God. And verse 19 says, And he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well, as, as well to the women as men, to everyone a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed everyone to his house. So it was a day of gifts and gladness. And one of the things that David chose to do as a, a part of this day of gladness was to take... A, 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 a loaf of bread, a cake of bread, to take a piece of meat and to take a flagon of wine and to give them to every person, man and woman. And that would have been certainly a, a blessed gift by the king to the people as a day of rejoicing. And so all the people, the, script, the scriptures tell us, departed. They went to their house. Everyone's very happy. Everyone is, is joyous. It's been a wonderful day, a day of rejoicing. So David returns to his home. It's been a great day. And he comes home and he's a happy man. But all is not well in the house of David. We read in verse 20. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. Michael rebukes David sarcastically. How glorious was the king today, husband David? How glorious did you look today? And she charges him with having uncovered himself in the eyes of the people shamelessly and likens him to the vain fellows that uncover themselves. Now, this is not implying that David did anything morally indecent here. Not, not that he took his clothes off. What she means by this is that he set aside his royal vestments and put on the linen ephod. That he uncovered himself of his royal vestments, of, of the royal garb. To do so was for David to lower himself to the level of the people. Rather than to maintain the distinction of his royalty. And this is where we need to remember who Michael is. She's the daughter of Saul. Now, we spent a good amount of time in 1 Samuel. And throughout our time in 1 Samuel, could you ever have imagined Saul humbling himself and lowering himself to the, to the level of the people? Never with Saul, right? 
Never, never. I mean, that man reveled in his kingly authority. That man, what, once, once he tasted that, right, once he tasted the authority, it, it went to his head. It, it was his. No one could have it. David couldn't have it. No one could have it. His authority, his kingly right. Saul was a very, very proud man. He was a king, and everybody needed to know he was the king at all times. He would never, ever have lowered himself to the common people of Israel. And Michael grew up with this father, seeing this example, and so she was extremely embarrassed that her husband, who is now the king, would, would do this, would put on a linen ephod, would take off his royal garments, and would dance among the people and before the ark in the linen ephod. So it was embarrassing to her. It wounded her pride. And here's David. As if equal with the people, dancing among the people in the linen ephod. And she calls him as one of the vain fellows who shamelessly uncovers himself. That word vain in the scriptures is the, the Hebrew word raka, which if it sounds a little bit familiar to you, it's because we actually find that word in, in the New Testament. Jesus says in Matthew 5.22, But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. The word Raka means empty, vain, worthless. Uh, similar to that concept of Belial in many ways. It was a deep, deep insult in Hebrew culture all the way to the time of Jesus, right? To call a man Raka would be the deepest of disrespect and honor. To, for a wife, to liken her husband to Raka, to, to the vain fellows, to the worthless man. She is saying that you... Because you divested yourself of your royal garments and put on a linen ephod and lowered yourself to the people, you're, you're effectively no better than a bum on the street. To liken the anointed of the Lord to a man of such disesteem would, would be deeply disrespectful to, to the king, to her husband and also to his intentions. Now David's response is found in verses 21 and 22. The text tells us this. And David said unto Michael, It was before the Lord, which chose me before thy father, and before all his house, to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord, and, and I will yet be more vile than thus, and will be base in mine own sight, and of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. David tells Michael here that he did not lower himself for the sake of the people. He lowered himself to the level of the people for the sake of the Lord. That he, though king of God's people, was nothing more special in the eyes of the Lord than any of God's other people. And so he brought himself to the level of the people that all the people might be on the, right, on, on the proper level before the Lord. 
It was not a day for him to assert his royalty. It was not a day for him to assert his standing. It was not a day for him to assert his authority. It was a day for him to magnify God and to, to lower himself. It was a day for him to be out of the picture so that God could be in the picture. And when it comes to God, we know there is no peasant or king. There's no rich or poor. There's no young or old. In the context of praise, the song of the child is as beautiful as the song of the most seasoned voice among us. David reminds her that God had... And David is a little bit upset here. Can you see it? He says to her, it was before the Lord. By the way, that same Lord who chose me over your father. The same Lord who chose me in place of your siblings. God put me here. God stripped your father of that right. So why, when you're, you're comparing me to your father, and somehow I'm being di disesteemed, God stripped Saul of, the, of the, the royal line. God stripped Saul of the honor because he was proud. And here I am doing the exact thing that your father never would have done, and somehow that's a problem? That's a good thing, Michael. You don't want me to be like your dad. That's why I'm where I am, because your dad was rejected. And his posterity was rejected for his pride, for his sin. He's, he's reasoning with her here, but you can tell he's not happy with what she's saying. Michael is trying to defend the royal honor, her royal pride. The pride which her father had so strongly asserted. The pride which, whereby he honored himself above the Lord. And Saul had been rejected for that very thing. So he says, I will continue to humble myself before the Lord. And he says, I will get more base still. I will get as low as I can get if it means God is exalted. And he says, and you know who will respect me for it? You know those handmaids that you despise out there? Those lowly women, not like you, royalty? I'll be had in honor by them at least. If I can't be honored by my wife, at least I'll be honored by the people who love the Lord. And David understood the very concept we spoke of this morning, that God exalts the humble, right? And so David, knowing and loving the Lord, would determine to be humble himself before the Almighty in any and every way possible. There's a good lesson here for wives, which we're going to cover. I, I'm, I'm going to have a family month, or family, it'll be about six weeks, between Mother's Day and Father's Day. Family-focused, every sermon, morning and evening service. And uh, I'll be covering this passage from that angle at that time. Um, so we're not going to go there this evening about Michael's attitude toward David. But in verse 23, notice what we see as we close out our text. Therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child unto the day of her death. This is a curious verse, and the question becomes, why did she not have children? Was it the Lord judging her for her pride, or was it David's disfavor from this point onward? The text doesn't tell us, nor do I believe there's enough evidence for us to make a judgment one way or another, but I would lean toward the idea that this is David's disfavor. And so effectively, he, he didn't want much to do with her from this point on, even though she is one of his wives. 
And the reason why I lean toward that is because the text doesn't say anything like the Lord shut her womb, which we typically find when we're talking about barren women, that the Lord shut her womb. It says that she had no child until the day of her death. And so there's a little bit of just a different flavor to it. But, but we can't know one way or another. Was it that the Lord shut her womb? Perhaps. Maybe it's that David chose not to ever have children with Michael. Perhaps because he saw in her an unhealthy loyalty to the ways of her father. An unhealthy loyalty to that propensity of pride and of arrogance. And no doubt, of course... Um, if David were to have children with her, she would be raising those particular children. And maybe he didn't want his children to be tainted by that, by, by that attitude that was found. And if she's going to disrespect him, why would he want children who are going to be taught under this disrespectful woman? Either way, her words of disrespect toward her husband for his zeal and humility are linked to her childlessness one way or another. Now, in our application today, I want to talk to you about zeal. I want to talk to you about how you live your life before the Lord. I don't feel like I can begin there, though. I really struggled putting the application to this message together. I really didn't know how to go about it. So I'd like us to walk through a thought process that will end with, with, with one statement that needs to be made. So follow with me as I build a foundation here. In 1 Corinthians 10.31... The Bible says, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. The idea that Paul teaches here is that every action of our lives ought to be done with an eye towards God's glory. That means that there is nothing in life which is actually neutral. I can eat or drink to God's glory as when I partake in Thanksgiving and properly. I can eat and drink to God's glory by avoiding gluttony and drunkenness. In these ways, even something as trivial as eating or drinking can be done to God's glory. And it's expected that it would be this way. Now, for something to conform to God's glory, it needs to take on certain characteristics. And one of those characteristics is that it must first be pure. It must first be pure in that it does not offend God's holy character by its character or by its nature. If something is sinful, vile, filthy, profane, unrighteous, self-righteous, then it does not pass the test of being pure. It cannot be to God's glory regardless of the context. There are things which by their nature are profane. Those things which we call sin, lying, cheating, stealing, murder, drunkenness, anger, hatred, sexual impurity of all sorts. All of those things, those are things that, that we wouldn't debate. We would not have a, a, a theological debate as to whether or not those are, can even be pure, because they can't. They are directly opposed to the character and the nature of God. They are impure by nature. They cannot be made pure. They, in, in themselves, cannot glorify God. So obviously, those are things that we don't do because we can't do them to the glory of God. Now, second, if it is pure, if it passes the purity test in that it's not sinful by nature, then secondly, it must be, and I just put, it must be right. And by that, I mean that the action or the thing must be used properly. Uh, any virtue can be made a vice. 
things which are pure in and of themselves can be made vile and profane and wicked by their use. Society is all about this today, right? They take things which are, are right or they take things which are well-intentioned and they twist them to make them vile or dirty. They twist them to make them wicked and they get a good laugh out of it and it's funny and haha and whatever. And, and they take that which is naturally pure and that which we ought to enjoy in its purity and they make it profane. So while television is not wrong in and of itself, it is made impure when certain things are watched on it. While the internet is not wrong in and of itself, it can be made impure by what is seen on it or heard on it. Well, <coughs> excuse me, while eating is not in, in itself wrong, right, it's pretty important, it can be made impure by the way we eat or what we eat or drink. While drinking is not evil, it can be used for evil, it can be made impure by what we drink. While dancing is not evil inherently, it can be used or made impure or evil. And so it is that the things which ought to be pure and ought to be right can be made vile. But all the things that we do should not just be pure, but should also be right. So it's pure. It's intrinsically not vile or wrong or sinful. Then it's right. It is a thing that is naturally pure that is being used for, uh, in, in a pure way, in a proper way, not being twisted or, or made impure. Then comes our mindset. The end of chapter Romans, uh, chapter Romans, Romans chapter 14, verse 23, Paul says, for whatsoever is not of faith, is sin. In Romans 14, Paul spoke of the weaker brethren and eating meat offered unto idols. And as he talked about this, he, he, he mentioned that there are some who, who truly can't eat meat offered unto idols without um, feeling as though they're offending the Lord, without offending their conscience. And because they would offend their conscience by eating it, to, to, for them to eat it would be for them to have a heart of rebellion against God. And so, in eating it, though it is not impure or wrong for them to eat that meat, it could be sin to them by offending their conscience. When something is pure in that it does not inherently offend the character of God, and when something is right in that it's not being used in a way that offends the character of God, it is then our responsibility to discern through the Spirit of God whether or not we can do that action in faith before God. That as you stand before God, knowing He sees you, can you do that action in faith? That before God this action is right that your motives and intentions for your action are right before God. Pure, right, proper mindset of faith. And then finally, as we build this argument, we read in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily, as unto the Lord and not unto men. When you have identified an avenue of life where you can do something that is pure, that is right, and that is in faith, the scriptures say, do it with all your might as unto the Lord for God's glory, not as unto men. Be zealous in your actions. Pour your heart into your efforts for the glory of God. 
Do that which you set your hand to do with all your might. And the mindset that Paul encourages is that in everything you do, you do it before the Lord. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. You recognize your actions to be in the presence of the Lord for the glory of the Lord. And that no matter how trivial that action seems, as a heavenly citizen, your action reflects upon your Lord. There are many positions in life where one's responsibility to represent transcends just the time that a person is at work. Government officials represent their country whether they're on the clock or off. Sports stars represent their teams. Sometimes they represent their cities whether they're in a game or not. We read all the time about the, 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 this sports star being arrested for domestic assault and that sports star being arrested for drug use and, and each time the team has to come out and make a statement, right? We're very sorry for what he did and we are going to get him help and, and, and we don't support his action but we support him and his family and reconciliation. All, all of those things that they, they, they've got their canned responses every time a sports star does what, what, whatever he does. Because he doesn't just represent himself, does he? He represents his team. And for, for some of the bigger stars, he represents his city or, or the entirety of his sport. Pastors represent churches, whether we're behind the pulpit or whether we're at home. I represent this congregation when I go to the bank or when I go to Walmart, uh, when I'm driving around, when I get gas. I represent you in a manner of speaking. I represent, and of course we all represent Christ. As a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, you are a representative of Christ to the world 24-7. Now with this level of representation comes considerations. As a role model and representative, a sports figure needs to be careful what he does because his actions, even in the smallest of ways, reflect upon his team and his organization. A government leader is compelled, or they're supposed to be compelled, to have a good testimony in his personal life because he's a representative of a people group. Whether that's his state, or his county, or his congressional district, he's a representative, she's a representative, and that matters. These positions literally shape everything about these men and women's lives and lifestyles. So too and more so it ought to be with Christ. That what we do represents Him. And we should care to represent Christ well in every avenue of our lives. Whether that's in our homework, our job, our chores, fixing the car, doing the yard work. We ought to see ourselves as representing Christ. That the job that you did raking those leaves, mowing that lawn, ought to represent your Savior. But even more so than this, it isn't just that we represent God, is it? We also serve God. It's not just my duty to do my best because I represent the Lord. 
it's my privilege to do my best because I serve the Lord. Because I love God. And I'm going to do everything I do in such a way that I want to honor God with it. I'm going to honor God with how well my chores get done. I'm going to honor God with my appearance. I'm going to honor God with my kindness, how I treat those people. Whatever I do, I'm going to do my best so that God might be honored and God might be pleased. Now carry this thought with me into David's situation. He has stripped off his royal robes. He's wearing the linen ephod, lowering himself to the level of the people and dancing among them as unto the Lord. He's doing this to the Lord. It, it is his privilege, he sees, to humble himself before God, to lower himself from his royal status, simply to be one of God's people worshiping the Lord on this day of joy and gladness. He's doing nothing sinful, for his vestments were appropriate, and the dance was appropriate before the Lord. His heart did these things with complete intent that God would be glorified on this day. And Michael despised him in her heart, rebuked him with her lips. She did so in her pride, because she didn't like how his worship would be perceived, would reflect upon her. She thought his actions made him look like a buffoon, and were unbecoming of the dignity of the king's office. But what David did, he did before the Lord and for the Lord. What he was doing was pure. What he was doing was right. What he was doing was in faith for the glory of God. And what he was doing was heartily, as unto the Lord and not before men. And so the point I'd like us to get to as we consider this is this. Let no shame be felt on account of godly zeal. Never be ashamed of your zeal for the Lord. And likewise, never be guilty of shaming someone else for their zeal for the Lord. You know, zeal is a blessing from the Lord and it's something which we could all use a little more of, wouldn't you say? And yet we find in Christian circles that people who have zeal are oftentimes ridiculed for their excitement, aren't they? People look at them and say, well, you need to slow down. Slow down, slugger. Settle down a little bit there for the Lord. You're, 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 you're getting a little over the top. A young man or a woman just gets saved or they're, they're eager to serve the Lord and others will look at them and say, hey, you just need to calm down or you'll grow out of that, right? I've heard that one before. Or, you'll settle down. You're, you're, you're a new believer. You'll settle down in time. Why? Why should he settle down? Why should any of us settle down? Why should we clock back our zeal and our excitement and our desire to serve the Lord? Why should we bring it back to the level of, to the level of, of, of maturity where we just kind of float through life looking good and sounding good and being good and, and, and yet not a whole lot happens for God, does it? They may even rebuke these, these mature Christians, may even rebuke him. Tell him that he's just being proud. You're just being, you're just being that, that holier than thou. I can't tell you how many times I was called holier than thou in, 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 in my, my uh, years of great zeal. You're just being holier than thou. You're just trying to, to you know, look better than the rest of us. Because he's zealous for the Lord. Because she's zealous for the Lord. When, when people do this, when, if, if, if you do this, when people do this to you, they're reflecting an immaturity of faith. Perhaps your zeal convicts their heart 
and so makes them angry. And rather than join in your excitement because they don't want to agree with that or they don't want to be imposed upon to have to go out of their way to do what they feel like they probably ought to do anyway, they just mock you, scorn you. They try to snuff out your excitement. If I don't have the energy or the, the, the care to get excited with you or I don't want to impose upon myself the, the excitement that you have, tell you what, let me just try to snuff you out so that I don't have to be around you. I don't have to feel that pang of conscience when you're serving the Lord and zealous for the Lord and, and, and I'm just going to sit here on my keister and sit on my couch and eat potato chips. Perhaps your zeal embarrasses them because they care more about what the people around them think than they care what God thinks. And when they find someone that doesn't care what the people around them think and is just going to serve the Lord without, without care for what, what their neighbor thinks or for, for what the guy across the street thinks or for what the, the extended relatives think, when they see that person that, that doesn't care that people are mocking them or scorning them, when they see that person who is standing outside handing out tracts and people are angry at him and people are cursing at him and people are, and, and they don't care and they're just giving out tracts anyway and, and they're willing and you see them and your zeal embarrasses them and they, they come by and they say, hey, look, 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 you're, you're making us look bad here. Can you, just, can you just tone down? Just, you know, tone it down a little bit here. I'm embarrassed. Perhaps they've never seen a zealous Christian before. And so they interpret your zeal to be pride. And you just want to serve the Lord and do what's right. And so you're busy doing whatever you can to serve the Lord. And people look at you and say, oh, they're just proud. They're just holier than thou. They can't actually put their finger on any wrongdoing, but they just don't like it. David was a man who loved the Lord. And he was allowing that love to overflow in his life by humbling himself in his zeal and dancing before the Lord in a linen ephod. Michael was proud and sought to snuff out David's zeal because his actions made her uncomfortable. His actions embarrassed her. And she told him so. And in doing so, she was very much in the wrong here. She was seeking to shame godly zeal. And it ought not be so. Don't let anybody shame you for your zeal. When you get excited about something for the Lord, don't look at others who aren't excited and say, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. I'm just going to clock it back. I'm just going to be like the rest of them. When you're excited for the Lord, that's a blessing. When you see something that you can give your whole heart unto to serve the Lord, that's a good thing. The, Zach, the, the lack of zeal among us as believers is not something that reflects upon us a measure of added dignity and maturity, it, it, it more or less reflects upon us apathy or, or a fear of being considered strange or different. It's, 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 it's a worldly fear. It doesn't show us to be next-level Christians. If anything, it shows us to be Christians of spiritual impotence, weakness, ineffectiveness, now, there will always be people who are naturally more excited or excitable than others. You know, there, there are those people, we've had an evangelist come through before, right, who's just naturally extremely excited. And that's just his character. And you look at that and you say, I'm just not that guy. And you say, I wish I could have that zeal. 
but I'm just not that. It's just not in me to be that way, and that's okay. There will always be people who could stand to just kind of clock it down a little bit uh, in their excitement. Uh, not, not, not their zeal for the Lord, but just, you know, there, there are some people that go over the top, right? I'm not saying that there aren't. But let us never shame them for their zeal. Let us never shame them for their love for the Lord, for their excitement to do the work of God, for their love for God. Much rather, may I encourage you, you know what Michael should have done here? She should have fed off of that zeal. She should have seen her husband who is so unlike her father and that her father was so proud. And here's a man that was willing to humble himself in order to exalt the Lord. And when David came home to bless his household, she should have been there at the door and she should have praised the Lord with him. Maybe she didn't fully get it, right? Maybe, maybe she's not quite that emotional. David was a pretty emotional guy and he, he liked to overflow. Maybe, maybe she wasn't quite there, but you know what? David's serving the Lord. David loves the Lord. He's not doing anything wrong. Let's let him have this. And, and you know what? Let's get excited with him. We should, as well, feed off of these men and women, these zealous men and women. Allow them to be used of God to make us more excited. Doesn't mean that you'll be frenzied, perhaps like they are, whatever the case may be, but, but certainly don't snuff out their zeal. And maybe even try to catch a little of it for yourselves, and in doing so, raise all boats for the glory of God. Let's close in prayer.